We bow our heads and pray together. We sang, Jesus, uh, by the power of your word, I am restored, I am redeemed. Lord Jesus, as we meet tonight, uh, some of us are in need of restoration, some of us are in need of redemption. By the power of your word, may we find them this evening. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series in Isaiah, so please turn to uh, page 723. Isaiah does not have long to live. To uh, help you catch up with uh, what's gone before, Uh, for some it's a reminder, I guess. The Assyrians, the Syrian armies, have been devastated. We found that in chapter 37. And the emperor, Sennacherib, has withdrawn from the territory. Now King Hezekiah's reign has been peaceful, as chapter 39 promised. And he has had the promised peace and security. But by the time that Hezekiah died... Isaiah, the prophet, had had 54 years as a prophet. If he lived into the reign of Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son, then Isaiah would have seen fulfilled all the threats that as prophet he'd held out to Hezekiah in chapter 39. That after peace in Hezekiah's time, there would be disaster. And Manasseh was a dreadful king. He was in post for long enough to do terrible damage to the cause of God. It's quite impossible that Isaiah could have lived long enough to see out Manasseh. And there's a long tradition, it crops up in the the letter to the Hebrews, that Isaiah was actually tortured and killed in the reign of Manasseh. Now the last thing that we've had from Isaiah in chapter 39 is this. Hezekiah, there's going to be peace now, but then there's going to be terrible disaster. Well, that's okay for chapter 39, but is that it? What message does Isaiah have to offer after that? Well, we need to pay attention to the way the references to time work out. I'm very excited because I've got a map for you. Can we have the map, please, John? Uh, now, uh, the trouble with uh, maps is that they always bleach everything out. So, uh, there's th- this bit is water, okay? That, where it says Terranean Sea, it's a bit of a clue, really. Um, <clears throat> now, what's happened is, uh, uh, there's, there's Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is in Jerusalem, and uh, the forces of the Assyrian Empire, which is basically this stretch up here, have withdrawn, but they kind of leave leave him owing uh, allegiance in some way to the Assyrian emperor. Now, by this time, the Assyrian empire had uh, Nineveh and Assur as its big capitals, but it had a kind of little capital over in Babylon. Now, chapter 39. That awfully nice Merodach Baladan in Babylon, who is an enemy 
of the emperor in Nineveh, writes to uh, Hezekiah over in Jerusalem and says, hello, uh, you and me, we can be mates, can't we? That awful, awful emperor over there in Nineveh, why don't you and I get together? And uh, Hezekiah says, what a terribly good idea. Tell you what, when your envoys come, I'll show you all my resources. That's a terribly good idea, says Merodach Baladan. And then Isaiah says to uh, Hezekiah, well, what did you do? And Hezekiah said, well, he seemed a nice bloke, so I showed him all my resources. I showed him all my armies, all the gold plate in the temple. It was wonderful. We had a great old time. And Isaiah says, you're a twit. Uh, because actually what you don't know is that, uh, and then he warns him at the end of chapter 39, that the forces of Babylon are going to end up worse than the forces of Assyria. Shortly after this, uh, Babylon indeed rises against the empire of Assyria, becomes the Babylonian empire, and becomes far worse, and eventually will come down uh, 100 years after Hezekiah dies and completely take out Jerusalem. In between times, during that hundred years, they uh, make raiding parties from time to time. So that's the the history of how things work out. So is Isaiah's message in uh, chapter 39, the final one, the message of doom? No. He's actually going to leave behind him a message of comfort for all those who are going to have to live through this terrible hundred years. His message has been peace and disaster later. But now in, verse, in chapter 40, he adds, as the record has it, he adds, but there will be comfort after that. So now I want to start on the text. And it has five different sections for our purposes tonight. Thank you, John. Uh, that's going to stay... Oh. Oh. Should be something else there. This is going to be interesting. Ah, Good. Five sections for our purposes tonight. Uh, And that will stay up there for the rest of uh, this talk. Um, Just look for a moment at the promises that there are at the beginning of this chapter. Chapter 40. Don't worry, the screen's going to stay there. Look at the Bible for a minute. The Bible's the word of God, the screen is not. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's still my people. It's still your God. It's still about Jerusalem, your home. And the slavery is over. The penalty for sin has been paid completely. Verse 2. Does that ring any bells? It's going to be expanded in the, fifth, in the chapters, uh, the 50s. At the time, it looked to the day when there was nothing more left to pay for the mistrust that they'd had of their God, the willful rebellion of their hearts. And that story has been told in a sorry, sad chapters 1 through 39. Verse 3, now, chapter 40, God is coming back like one far greater than even the emperors that form the comparison with all their road building. God will return from afar. His glory will be seen. And now, it's not just Jerusalem, but verse 5, all mankind together will see it. That's the basic message. To those who are in dire straits as exiles and slaves, for whom all the promises of God must have seemed like dust and ashes, be of good courage, it will end. 
I suppose we, here we are, we find ourselves watching scenes of Syria every night. We hear stories of child soldiers in the Central African Republic. And tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day. We should not tread too lightly over what it must have felt like to be a subject people for a hundred years and more. Be of good courage, it will end. And God will end it, and you will return. And then comes a second section in verses 6 through to 8. It's a parallel to the prophet's experience at the start of his career. There he was told, told, go and tell this people, and that was a message of judgment on God's people. Now he's told to cry out a message of judgment, but upon all of humankind, Babylon included. Those verses are actually read at a funeral because it concerns death. The breath of the Lord, verse 7, is always a judgment. And before it, people are as grass and flowers, and they wither and fade. We wither and fade. When it seems that you are meek and Babylon is mighty, then remember the breath of the Lord. When it seems that you are pitiful and Babylon is powerful, then remember the the breath of the Lord. And the messages of comfort for Judah and judgment for all all of humankind, including Babylon, then brought together in a section, verses 9 through to 11. The God who has processed through the desert, in verse 3, is now seen from the high mountain of Zion. See, here is your God, verse 9. There is here a message of might, And power, verse 10, his arm rules for him. But it is also a message of tenderness and care. Verse 11, he gathers his lambs in his arms. His arm rules for him, but he gathers his lambs in his arms. Those verses then set the agenda for everything that follows in chapter 40. And you could say, for all that follows in the rest of uh, Isaiah. And arguably, for everything that follows in the rest of Scripture, the New Testament included. Because what follows from now on answers, in chapter 40 and elsewhere, the two questions that any of us find ourselves putting to these great promises of God about his arm and his arms. Can you? Will you? There isn't a question with which you have come into church tonight that doesn't fall into one of those bigger questions. Can you do what I need? And will you do what is needed? Well, they set the agenda, and then there are these two bigger sections. The fourth section, uh, 12 to 26, tells us that God is the creator of all. Now, that would have been a rebuke 
to any who would have been influenced by the gods of Babylon and Assyria. You see, the gods themselves, for most of the ancient world, what they were was the features of the world turned into characters and called gods. They were the storm, the sun, the stars, the rains. They all had their gods. But Yahweh, our God, is not like this, says Isaiah. He is far greater. He has to be far greater because these things aren't even gods. He made these things that go by the name of gods elsewhere. What is made cannot be a god. And Yahweh made the waters that sit in the hollow of his hand. Yahweh made the dust of the earth that he could carry in a bucket. Yahweh, verse 26, made the stars that are so far from being gods that Yahweh who made them can give each one its own name like a pet. Now, I'm missing out tonight, the section that we missed out in our reading, on idolatry. Because there's lots about idolatry in these chapters, and so uh, I want to leave that theme for others. But there too, verses 18 to 21, the idols are pathetic because they're created things next to the God of everything. Just as verse 12 begins with a question about the world, verse 21 begins with a question about its people and its princes. The creator who stretches out the heavens is also the uncreator who reduces to nothing and uses the whirlwind that the Babylonians worshipped, verse 24, to sweep away those who worship it. They actually worshipped the god of the whirlwind. And there, in verse 24, God, like Yahweh, like a whirlwind himself, just sweeps away the rubbish. Not only the mountains, but the men, not only the world, but its women, all remain in the hands of the Creator. And I want to stop there briefly. Because creation matters, and I fear that we may quietly be forgetting that. We may be so caught up in the debates about Genesis that we forget to assert to others and to draw on for our own praise that God is the creator of absolutely all of it. Genesis, in fact, the bits at the beginning of Genesis are the same kind of period as this material. We know that because the ideas that Genesis is fighting are the same ideas about uh, personified gods as features of the world that this is fighting. That's why we're told in Genesis that all these features of the world, the sun, the stars, the fish, the birds, the whole lot, Yahweh made them. He didn't just take what there was and shape it. He made them from nothing. That's how great he is. The important thing about creation, and it's just as important, whatever view you take of early chapters in Genesis, is that God is the source God is the author. God is the originator. I think we don't necessarily let that have its force when we're in discussion with others. Because if he isn't, 
those things. If he's not the author, if he's not the originator, not the source, if this universe is here by some extraordinary cosmic accident... uh, Actually, that's not true, is it? Let me stop that. Let me rephrase that. Because by definition, if it's an accident, it can't be extraordinary. By definition, anything that's an accident could be just as ordinary as anything else once you take any creator out of it. But if the universe arises finally out of any kind of extraordinary or ordinary accident, (coughs) sorry about coughing into the microphone, or out of some conflict between cosmic forces, then the human quest that your friends are on for peace and courage is a complete waste of time. Do we say that to them? Do we ask them whether they have the courage to face a universe which has no start, no no cause to it, no purpose to it, isn't going anywhere? God the Creator stands behind what we know as our universe. And spiritually, within this, uh, this section, note how God's creatorness is expressed It's not just that he began things, but that he's bigger than all the things created. And I suggest that's an answer to the deep cry, or at least a deep cry, of the human heart. Do I have a place? Is there something, somewhere, someone, beyond my experience? Has it all had a beginning? Is it going anywhere? Or is it just endless human experience, repeated until one day we're not there? The ancient world believed in cycles and it's moving to the point where our world does too. Life happens, then it stops, and then it starts for someone else. But the Bible's view is a line. And above that line sits the creator, sustainer, and ender of all things. Yes, you have a place. Can life be different from the circle that you feel? Yes, it can. Because God is, in verse 22, enthroned above the circle of the earth. Stuck in Babylon, in all the horror of being a slaved, an enslaved, subject people. Influenced by Babylonian mighty forces, dressed as gods. Forced to walk down streets with the images of these gods on every wall. The people must have asked, God, can you? And they discovered that Isaiah had already prepared the answer, yes. But it wasn't the only question. Verse 10 says, His arm rules for him. God is mighty. But just as much tonight, you and I need more than a mighty God, who can. After all, in the face of a mighty God, we might still speak the words that take us into our fifth section, verses 27 to 31. As for me, my way is hidden. My cause is disregarded. Maybe there is such a mighty God out there somewhere. But maybe we are simply insignificant to such a God. Can you? Yes, But will you? 
In Babylon, they would have lost hope. Hundred years, three generations, as we say it now, is probably more than four generations, perhaps. But in the face of their question, Isaiah, verse 28, puts on this uh, astonished voice, knowing that question would be sensible and normal. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not listened? This creator does not grow tired or weary. This creator has strength to spare for those who do grow tired and weary, verse 30. Those who might most expect to exult in their power and their capacity, the youths, the young men, they seem, even they seem to have nothing to live for and are merely weary and weak. What finally is the promise of verse 31? That they will soar on wings like ee girls? Is it just a nice song that we'll sing in church? It suffers from all the same things that any famous bit does. We can treat it like a spiritual aspirin, a pill to be taken in all negative circumstances. To trust in the Lord, to hope in the Lord, as we're called to do in verse 31, is not simply to wait in the waiting room hoping that the train will happen. After all, these youths, young men, they walk and they run. Nor is it a trusting that ignores our own participation. After all, the whole problem in chapters 1 to 39 was a people who called Yahweh their God, but they didn't act in his ways. That kind of hope, that kind of trust has to be rather a life. And test this on your pulses for tonight. A life lived utterly in the giving of ourselves. Not holding back in our obedience. Nor holding back in our longing for him. For him and for nothing finally but him. There's a kind of idolatry that refuses to believe that this creator God could care for me. And it leads to cynicism of mind and bitterness of heart. Verse 31 is not a magic pill. It is the expression of the bond of God and humankind, what we call the covenant in which we live for him, and he lifts us up, because he can, and he will. Still and all, it's a lot to believe, that his hand still can, and his heart still cares. Because however wonderful Isaiah's words from God might be, they were still just words, And the peoples of the exile and after it, in fact, ended up following those words, believing in them only sporadically. Wouldn't it be marvelous if that sense of the arm and the arms could be given expression? If there could be an expression of mighty Lord and tender shepherd? Oh, yes, there was. We are in the territory of the words quoted by John the Baptist. They're there in verses 3 to 5. 
And as we move through these chapters, we move into promises on the lips of Jesus. He is the one who blesses the children in his arms as their shepherd and warns the people, as we heard, that in his coming the strong man is defeated and the kingdom, the time of the king, has arrived. So let me finish by dividing you into two groups. There are those of you who came in tonight believing that this God is the creator. But you have lost confidence that he cares for you. You feel weary. And believing in God does not make you feel like you are soaring like an eagle. Well, I am in my job, my day job as pastor, fully aware of the kind of bleakness that can affect us. And yet I want to suggest it may be time to stop complaining. Because God does care. The time he takes, the twists and turns along the way in the road, yes, they really are agonizing. But the way for the Lord in the desert is being made straight. All things will be put to rights. All things, including what troubles you. So take a step and walk and run. Because to live as though your cause is disregarded is to live in unfaith. But I also want to say something to another group by way of warning to those who may be here because they sense a caring for need but have never bowed the knee to the mighty God and creator of the earth and the heavens who has made himself known in Christ. I suggest you stop searching. By all means, walk away if you wish and deny that here is the one who creates and the one who cares together. But don't miss out that this is the scope, precisely the scope of the Christian claim, with the roots of Jesus going back into Isaiah and his promises. Don't be one of those who says you're searching and searching and searching and make it sound all romantic. In Isaiah 40, that searching should come to a dead stop. Here you have a creator who can and a carer who will. There is no other need in the human heart, including yours. So bow the knee and repent of your sins and unbelief and come to Christ who was there when the stars first sang and will be there when the skies are rolled up, Lord of all of it and laying down his life for you. God, can you? God, will you? Yes, so be it. Let's pray. And a moment of quiet, I think. Lots of words, so let's have some quiet. Where is it that in truth you doubt that God can? Where is it that in truth you doubt that God will.
Comfort my people, says your God. Amen.